We're into the third week of October cast at Natural and Wild, and it's time to get weird. Today I'm going to talk about strange, supernatural, and unexplainable things I never talk about publicly. Why don't I talk about this stuff? Because people think I'm crazy enough as it is. But it's October. It's time for spirits to walk right through that veil into your house. And I figured this was the best time for it. These are all true personal experiences I've had. None of them make any sense. They're unexplainable. And there's no closure for any of these stories. Welcome to Freaky Friday. Traveling Ghosts It was hot down in Louisiana. I'd packed up all my ex's things. He'd taken off to New York City to find work, and I was still in the deep south, packing up all our stuff and getting it into storage, cleaning up the apartment, giving back the keys, making sure he got his deposit back. He was busy. I had to help. But it was almost time for me to head up there myself. Our apartment was empty, and I'd arranged to stay with a friend for a week before going up there. Me and my friend had gotten into the habit of drinking cherry moonshine and watching these old crime shows on TV at night. She got to talking about spirits one night and said she'd like to know what was in her house and wanted me to describe to her what I quote-unquote saw moving through her home. Well, I don't know how to do that, I lied, sipping on my drink and hoping that she'd just return her focus back to the love triangle on television. Oh, yes, you do, she said, and gave me this look that showed me there wasn't a doubt in her mind that I was capable of doing that sort of thing, of seeing bizarre occurrences and ghosts and whatnot. Yeah, I could do it. I'd done it before. But I didn't remember telling her I could do it on cue. This came out of nowhere for me, and I didn't want to do it. Didn't want to even try. I was content being comfy on her white, clean couch with my drink and all those obscene TV crime stories in the dead of night. But she was insistent, and I gave in. However, I told her I'd need for her to be very quiet, turn off all the lights, and give me some time for myself. I'd never done it with another person in the room. I'd never done it for anybody. When she cut the lights out, we were sitting in this quiet house in New Orleans. I didn't even hear her as she slipped away to the other side of the room. Out of sight, out of mind. I was already going into a deep, hypnotic state. I'd learned to do this when I was very little. It started when I'd get into trouble, and I didn't want to hear all the yelling and see the anger. I just blocked it all out. Went into another place in my head. I could turn off the world around me in two seconds. Couldn't hear a thing from people living in the tangible, physical world. It was like they started to fade far, far away, and I would slip into this place that looked identical to where I'd been with the people, but there was something different about it. It had different things in it, different types of people, different things that didn't even have anything to do with human people. I've seen shadows, 
I've seen something with a form that resembled what you see in the summertime when you're driving down a hot paved road and there's this vapor, this heat wave down the highway in front of you. Remember those? Those heat waves off in the distance? Have you ever seen them? Well, this looks just like one, but it's not on a hot road. It's inside a house and it moves around and it has a presence with it and a feeling attached to it and I've never met one that's very nice. But back to my friend's house, I didn't see one of those there. I just saw the old, long-gone impressions of people who would come in from one particular corner of the house, move through the living room area, and go right out the other side and into the night. They seemed to slip through like they were traveling through a tunnel. They didn't even notice where they were, or that this was a house with some living person in it. They would just slip in, move through, slip out the other side, completely oblivious. No particular feelings or emotions attached. Just moving through on their way somewhere. I didn't know where. And that's all I saw that that night. That's all I experienced before I snapped back out of this dream state and all the lights came back on. So intrusive. So sudden. She said I'd described these dead people in detail, one being an elderly woman who seemed sick, with her hair up in a bun and a frail figure, pastel gown, and this dark pink blush covering up some gaunt pale skin on her face. But that was the one that stuck with her. I was done. I just wanted to go to bed. I didn't want to do this again. It felt very weird. The House in the Valley I was living in Spindale, North Carolina, back when I went to the first college I attended, a school for radio and television broadcasting and videotaping and journalism and all that good stuff. I was paying rent to a private family whose son attended the same school. I'll call him Scott. Wasn't his real name, but I don't like giving out private information. So Scott told me his dad was an architect and he had built this old house out of scavenged and sometimes strange parts and supplies. And it sat in a valley in the middle of the woods. Nobody was living in it except for him, and it was a two-story house with three or four bedrooms, a giant farm kitchen with all the old-school things that you'd see in in one of those kitchens, a huge working table with a, a mill grinder built into the side of it, kitchens stocked with antique silver, fine china, the works, a back porch where his mother had hung homegrown herbs, and they were still hanging there years later. And his father had built a newer, very nice and luxurious house on the other side of the hill and moved the family into that one where they resided at the time. I jumped at the chance to get out of this creepy little place that I'd been renting alone so I could attend school there. Somebody had taken an abandoned hotel and turned it into these little efficiency apartments. They were small just the normal-sized, small hotel room you'd pay for, like back in the 70s. 
and there was an empty, dilapidated swimming pool outside, surrounded by an overgrown parking lot, weeds breaking through the pavement, and a rickety chain-link fence. The place came with a genuine, movie-grade slumlord and all. I felt like I was in a California horror flick. So I packed my bags and I moved into the little strange house in the valley in the woods with Scott. Pretty soon, I realized Scott was a bit mental and the house was a bit haunted. But I believed that he had brought whatever it was there. Just by being who he was and living in this bizarre state of mind. I noticed his parents were really glad I was there, but very confused as though they didn't believe a girl would ever be caught dead spending time alone with her own son. His mother was very protective of him, to an almost unhealthy degree, and one night, as I was sleeping, I experienced my first visitation by one of those things that looked like a heat wave, sporting a sort of personality attached to it that felt very dark and downright evil. I was afraid of it. I was in the bedroom. It was in the bedroom. And there was this heavy feeling in the air. I couldn't see it at first. And then I looked up at the ceiling and there it was. This blob hovering over my bed, looking like a moving heat wave. It swelled, got bigger and bigger. The more I felt fear, the bigger it grew. It took up the whole ceiling and I was terrified. My heart was beating so hard I thought I was gonna have a heart attack and die. I didn't wanna literally scare to death, but I was afraid that that was what was about to happen. This thing creeped around my room, putting off an energy that felt like it wanted to harm me. Felt like it was angry, so angry. I got a big dose of it. It felt male, a male entity, watching me with resentment, wanting to hurt me in some way. I knew Scott was sleeping in another room in the house, but I didn't want to go wake him up because I also felt something bad coming off his sleeping space. These two things were connected, and I didn't trust him. I was frozen in a state of horror. I started to experience what felt like something was trying to slip a hand around my neck, getting ready to choke me. I had a pet cat at the time that was pregnant, and suddenly she was in my room and groaning and moaning like she was in pain. I threw on the light, looked at the clock, 3 a.m., quiet outside, but this room of mine was full of activity. As soon as that cat went into labor, I felt a force come down into the room with us that was pure, raw power, a female force of energy. And suddenly, that evil, heavy heat wave started to shrink up and lose its hold over me. I felt something like the force of the sun or some kind of nurturing life giver that was big, bigger than everything in the room, come right down and inside, 
and it brought this healing, this tranquility, but it came down like a warrior, just wiped out all that darkness so that this cat could have her kittens. I watched as the heat wave, creepy energy, just shrunk and shrunk, backing itself into the corner like the fear had reversed. And now it was feeling all the fear, not me anymore. That fear had transferred from me to the dark entity and made it small. It just took all the wind out of it. And as long as that cat and her kittens remained in that room, I never experienced that dark force again. While I was still living there, months later, I was walking through the woods and found this strange brick-lined square built down into the ground. It was small and filled with water. I didn't know what it was for or why it had been built that way. A ways away from the house, just right out there in the open, too small to be a pond and totally senseless. I couldn't figure out what it was for. And there was a dead crow floating in it, face down, still stagnant water with this dead crow face down in it. I was alone that day. I don't know where Scott had taken off to. And I felt this sympathy, this strong, heartfelt grief at seeing this dead bird floating in this strange, small, brick-lined pool of old water. I wanted to take it away from that awful place and give it a respectful goodbye. But I didn't know how to do it. I didn't have a shovel. I needed a shovel. I said it out loud because I was frustrated and there was no one around. I need a stupid shovel. I need a stupid shovel. And I ain't got one. What do you expect me to do? And do you know, as I looked around me, back towards the strange house in that valley, I spotted as plain as day a good-sized shovel leaning against the back door. But I swear it hadn't been there a minute before. My tensed-up body just relaxed. Well, I couldn't ignore that. Something was talking to me, helping me. I was supposed to bury that poor bird. So I went to get the shovel. I gently scooped up the crow into the shovel and walked with it towards a beautiful green pine tree. Soft pine needles covered the ground below it. This was a sweet feeling place right off the walking path right beside it actually it was a great big tree right beside the path and here came Scott's dad doing his run through the woods on that path he was a very fit older man who'd go on a run about three times a week I'd seen him out there before and here I was standing on his property with what was probably his shovel in my hand a dead bird in it and getting ready to dig a big hole under his pretty pine tree, right next to his running path. I froze, shovel and dead bird in hand. I prayed, I begged something, anything to become invisible. 
Yes, yes, yes. Please make me invisible. Don't let him notice me. I'm standing right here. He's going to run right up next to me. But don't let this man see me. Please, God, don't. I don't want to get into anything with these people today. This is very uncomfortable. I was wearing a really bright, loud jacket that day. It was a little chilly. It was a leopard print, bright yellowish-orange jacket that you could spot a mile away, standing there, waiting, with his shovel and this dead animal. He was coming closer, closer. I was looking right at him. He ran up right past me, seemed to look right through me and keep going. This man did not see me standing here with this bright leopard coat and this shovel sticking out with a big dead bird in it. He just ran right on by. I was shocked. What the hell? No way he didn't see me. I just stood there after he'd run on, eventually disappearing down the trail and back towards his new luxury house. I took a long, slow breath, relaxed, for I was alone again, safe, and I laid this bird down gently on the ground and began to dig its grave under the pines. The ground was so hard I couldn't break it up good. Roots and rocks, How could the ground be this hard? It was cold. Maybe it was just frozen ground. I got frustrated again. Come on! I just want to give this poor thing a proper burial. I can't break it. I can't dig here. And slowly and delicately, it began to sprinkle rain. Not a hard, steady rain, just a sprinkle just enough to soften up the dirt and let me cast my shovel down into the earth. And so I was able to dig its final resting place and bury the crow. I walked back to the house, put the shovel back, and made me a cup of coffee in a silver cup. And that was that. The Synthi Place When I came back to the property a little over two years ago, I was walking through the woods on our property, trying to explore how the creeks and the rivers ran through it. I walked to the top of an old hill way far away from any trace of water because it looked a little different than everything else I'd been hiking past that day. When you come across a place where a residence once was, you'll see little hints and characteristics that make it stand out even if there's nothing there anymore. The space is a little flatter. The plants grow a little differently across the forest floor. There's a space, and you'll usually find a plant that looks displaced, something that looks more ornamental that somebody once planted out in their yard when it was a yard. You'll sometimes find a giant deep hole either a well or the remains of where an outhouse used to sit, you'll know somebody lived there. So as I climbed up this hill, further and further away from the land indentions below that resembled a dried up small creek space, I found myself on the top of a flat place 
with a lot of buried big boulders. And I knew I'd come upon what the family called the Cynthia Place. A woman named Cynthia had lived there. She'd hike down the hill every day to carry her water back up. This was back in the Prohibition era, or it might have been slightly before, when my ancestor Nora McGee, who built the haunted house, used to visit her and eventually built another small house for Cynthia so she wouldn't have to keep hiking down the hill for water. Anyway, while Cynthia did live there, Nora used to visit. Now back in those days, if a young woman became pregnant out of wedlock, she'd usually be found wandering somewhere as a runaway or outright exiled from her family. You weren't supposed to be pregnant and unwed. Well, Cynthia and Nora McGee were met by a young pregnant lady one day who just appeared walking down through the area. And she gave off the impression that something had gone very wrong and she couldn't speak. Now, I don't know if she was physically unable to speak or if she'd suffered some kind of trauma that drove her to never talk again. But she was there and Cynthia took her in and took care of her. The girl did eventually go into labor while Cynthia and Nora tried to deliver the baby. But tragically, both the baby and the girl died that day. And now this girl is buried in an unmarked grave somewhere on that hill. Cynthia and Nora buried her and her baby alone. When I came across the place, I hadn't yet heard that story. I just knew it was Cynthia's old haunt. And I was fascinated by such things. So I poked around at the old big rocks and tried to imagine what the house must have looked like. It was probably a shack of a thing on a rock foundation. There were so many boulders sunken into the ground. And they said that there was once a stone chimney. Suddenly, the place seemed to take a slow spin around me. I thought I'd walk too far on too little food. When did I eat last? I felt dizzy. The trees and the ground, everything, seemed like it was shifting. And I felt the sensation of sadness and some older lady beckoning me to stay there with her. There was this loneliness. And I all of a sudden felt lost. I couldn't find my way out of there. That was weird. It was a simple hike. I knew I'd just have to go down the hill, but did I? I didn't know where I was anymore. I was stuck there. I couldn't get out. This place was moving. My head, it felt so dizzy, so dreamlike. Nothing felt real anymore. Nothing felt like the normal world. I was in some other place. I was in some other time. And she felt friendly, but sad. I thought I might stay. I was starting to get comfortable. But no, no, no. This was all wrong. I had to get out of here. I forced myself in a state of absolute confusion to walk down that hill. Just walk down that hill, Christine. Just go. Go walk 
down. And when I got to the bottom, I felt better. It was over. No more nausea, no more confusion, no more feeling like I was in a hallucination. Everything was clear around me again, and I could see the sun shining, and I walked back home. Now I'm going to end this by telling you about my David Bowie experience. I'm serious. I had a David Bowie experience. So I was finally in New York. My ex and I were in our second and final apartment, and we'd been surviving the city for three years now. We had roommates coming in and out all the time. The place was constant action. But in the early, early mornings, around 4 a.m., everybody in the place usually left for work. They all worked in film and had to be on the movie sets super early every day. Now, there was no way to sleep through everybody getting ready and swinging gear around and hauling things out the door and fighting over one bathroom. It was like a train station. And so I was usually up with the rest of them having my coffee and helping my man get out the door without forgetting anything. So everybody left one morning. I was still in my pajamas, having a third cup of coffee and calming down from all that action. It was about 4.50 in the morning. I shut down all the lights. I've always liked small pockets of light. I hate overheads and can't wait to turn them all out after people leave. So I was sitting there in the dark, on the futon, by the one window we had in the living room, overlooking the courtyard, this strange courtyard that held one corner as a trash bin where everybody threw out their garbage. It wasn't a nice courtyard, just this old, dilapidated one with one corner dedicated to trash. And you could see across the way into other people's windows, which were usually shut. And there was this one door at the bottom level with a single light shining above it and down over. And that was what I was looking at while I was sipping on my coffee. This concrete dilapidated courtyard space with one lonely light shining over an arched old doorway. It was raining lightly. I could see the droplets showering down in front of this light. The window in our apartment was thick, and I couldn't hear anything out. It was so quiet, peaceful, finely, and dark. And I focused on this light in the rain above that old door outside. It was Monday, January 11th, 2016. I sat there drinking, and suddenly, this overwhelming, nostalgic feeling and the thoughts of David Bowie and his personality, the way I used to listen to him all the time, the way I used to gravitate towards him. He was one of my favorite people in entertainment when I was young. He was a beautiful man. He just struck my thoughts and took over my mind. And I suddenly saw a vision of him standing under that light in the rain. I looked at the clock. It was 5.30. So weird. So nostalgic. Peaceful. 
Such a strange, strong feeling. Why was I thinking of David Bowie? Why was I hallucinating him under the light outside? That was a hallucination. Probably because I was still sleepy. Still wanting to lie down in the bed. I don't know why I saw that. And then he was gone. I continued to sit there, thinking about him, not thinking it meant anything. I was assuming I was just remembering one of my favorite artists and having these strong feelings about him for some weird reason. I was getting nostalgic. (laughs) I got up and poured me another cup of coffee, sat back down and looked at my phone, checked Twitter. Oh my God, I saw it. I saw it at about 6 a.m. David Bowie had passed away in his home in New York early Sunday morning. They made the first announcement at 1.30 a.m. that Monday. And I was just getting it. A chill passed over me. I felt my heart drop. This was someone I had admired all my life. From the time I was a little girl, introduced to his music through my uncles and my mother, he was a beautiful human being. He was someone I'd not even thought of, though, for a long, long time. Since I'd wrapped my life up in somebody else's, since I'd kind of lost my way, ended up in the same town as him when he died, and saw what I swear was the image of his wandering spirit through New York those first mornings while people were mourning all over the place there and would be soon all over the world. It compelled me to get out a keyboard and play music, and I did. I wrote a song. It wasn't the best song in the world, but it was inspired that very morning. It's electronic, it's quick, and it's called Wonder Kid. I'm not a musician, and I was possessed to write this weird little tune the day of the announcement of David Bowie's death, and I call it my ghost song. It's up on YouTube somewhere. I don't ever advertise it because I don't think it's that good. I'm a singer, not a musician. I prefer someone else play the music, but at the time, there was nobody. There was just me. So I did the best I could, seeing as there was this strange ghost man driving me and compelling me to do it. I hope you've enjoyed some of my true haunting experiences this morning. Like I said, there's no closure or reason to any of these. They just are. Be prepared for more strange stuff. This has been Natural and Wild with Christine Grayson. October cast edition number three. Remember, two weeks from now, in the last October cast podcast, I'll be telling the creepy story of the double murder in my family that happened in the late 1800s, just down the road from where I live. So don't miss that. I'd like to thank my greatest supporters, Sheila McGregor, Chris Nolan, Arnold Bloom, Bruce Presson, Yvonne Ragland, Robin Umber, and William Bishop. 
I'd like to thank all of those who have donated to the virtual tip jar as this is a listener-supported show. Join me next week for another creepy podcast and have a great weekend.